One Sunday after our service, we had a man who stood up in the back, and he told me he wanted to speak to the congregation. Well, I was suspicious. I said that I needed to review his comments. He would first have to tell me what he wanted to say. Well, that didn't make him very happy. At first, he just pointed to his Bible. I told him, I said, well, the Bible's a big book. What specifically do you have in mind? He answered, Zechariah 14. I said, what verses? He said, verse 12. Well, Zechariah 14, verse 12, let me read it to you. This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths. Oh boy, I'm sure he had some grisly application for the folks of our church. I then explained to the fellow that the passage that he had just read was to God's enemies, not God's family. And I wasn't about to let him or anyone else for that matter walk into our church, hijack this pulpit, and lay a guilt trip on people Jesus died to save and lives to encourage. I told him if he had any guts at all, he'd take the message to the streets and share it with unbelievers. Of course, he bristled up. And his final words before stomping out the door were to accuse your pastor, believe it or not, of quenching the Holy Spirit. Later that day, I was mulling over the incident, and I sensed the Lord speak to me. And he said, Sandy, you were quenching the Spirit, but it sure wasn't the Holy Spirit. Hey, no pastor should quench or hinder the work of God's Spirit, but there are certainly some spirits that do need to be quenched. Jude would tell us that a big part of being a pastor is quenching spirits that need quenching. A pastor is like a forest ranger. He teaches people to build campfires, while at the same time, he helps them put out wildfires. Realize the word pastor means shepherd, and a shepherd's job is twofold. First, he feeds the flock. He sees to it that the sheep eat well, but he also protects the flock. He makes sure that the sheep aren't eaten. If all a pastor does is feed and feed and feed the sheep and never warns them of the wolves and the predators that are out there, he's only fattening them up for the slaughter. A pastor needs to both feed and warn. And this is what Pastor Jude does in this short letter. Verse 1 begins, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Two Judes play prominent roles in the Gospels. There was the Jude among the original apostles and Jude, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. And it was likely that it was Jesus' sibling who authored this letter. Now remember in John 7 verse 5, prior to Jesus' resurrection, Even his brothers and sisters denied his deity. They didn't believe in him. Jesus said of his hometown, Nazareth, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Apparently, familiarity can often breed contempt, and that's what it did in Jesus' own family. But when they saw that their brother had conquered death, that Jesus had risen from the grave, all their doubts were dispelled. The evidence now added up. They were now able to connect the dots. Jesus was who he said he was, not only their brother, 
but certainly God's son. We also learn from Acts 15 that James, another of Jesus' brothers, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And notice here Jude identifies himself by his relation with James. Certainly if Jude had been a name dropper, he would have introduced himself. The brother of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Instead, he says the brother of James, bondservant of Jesus. Shows Jude's humility, doesn't it? He was a bondservant or a love slave of his master, Jesus. And remember, a bondservant has a special, was a special category of slave. For after being freed, he would continue to serve, no longer out of obligation, but now out of love. We too are bound to Jesus. As Lord, he claims, he holds claim to both heaven and earth. As our master, he demands our allegiance. We too are his slaves, but once you know his grace, desire replaces duty. We serve the Lord not because we have to, but because we really want to. Well, Jude begins, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Not just added, but multiplied. God multiplies his blessings upon those he calls and he sanctifies, and he preserves. You know, God calls us to himself. In fact, he's calling some of you right now. Do you hear him? Do you hear his voice? Once he calls, he then earmarks us for his purposes. It was Mark Twain who said, the two greatest days in a person's life is the day we're born and the day we discover why. Well, you and I were born to know God to fellowship with him. And once we've been called and then assigned, God preserves us. Once on the right track, he keeps us on that track. God calls us and he sets us apart and he protects us. And then verse three, beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. Now notice initially, this was intended to be the subject of his letter, our common salvation the blessings that we have in Christ. But an urgent issue was heavy on Jude's heart. He tells us, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. See, a treatise on the workings and treasures of salvation would have been a luxury. For a more pressing issue was on Jude's heart. He needed to make a defense for his faith. And here's why. He says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude had encountered certain men, ungodly men, obviously false teachers, who were denying the truth about God and about His grace. He says they crept in unnoticed. They were creeps. That's what they were, creeps. 2 Peter 2 verse 1 had warned us, there will be false teachers among you. Well, Jude saw that they were already there. He writes to encourage his readers to fight for the truth. In 2022, LifeWay Research conducted a survey that shined a light 
on the dismal theology of today's America. For starters, today, just 53% believe there is only one true God. Just 53% of Americans. 42%, almost half, believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, Christianity, Judaism, and even Islam. Only 36%, just a little over a third, now believe that faith in Jesus alone as their Savior is the only way to receive God's free gift of eternal life. That means 64% of Americans believe Jesus is not the only way to God. Only 48% believe the Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. 65% believe that though we all sin a little, most folks are naturally good. 51% believe Jesus was a great teacher, but wasn't God. And 64% said religion is a matter of personal opinion, not objective truth. See, here's how bad it has really gotten. Among Americans, the most often quoted Bible verse is, God helps those who help themselves. There's only one problem. That's not a Bible verse. It's a quote from Thomas Jefferson. And yet 82% of all Americans say it comes from the Bible. I'm afraid we're not doing a very good job contending for the faith. And realize this is everybody's job. Not just the pastor's job, but your job around the water cooler at work. In your conversations with friends and family. It's surely every Christian's job to teach truth to our kids. We're all called to contend earnestly for the faith. For notice, it's the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. God isn't adding any new truth. The Bible is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The Old Testament scriptures that were confirmed by Jesus and the New Testament letters issued from the pen of his apostles were the truths given by God once and for all. We're not waiting on God to release Christianity 2.0. He's not updating the app. The Bible you possess is God's authoritative word for all time and for all people. And with all our might, we need to contend for this book. See, Jude challenges us, contend earnestly. The Greek word here, contend, is to struggle or to wrestle. Oh my, I'll never forget the tiny bit of wrestling I did in middle school phys ed. I mean, that mat time was the longest three minutes of my life. Wrestling is intense and grueling and draining. And when the whistle blew, man, I was totally spent. And yet this is the exhaustive effort we should give toward the understanding and communication of God's Word. A few years ago, I spoke at a pastor's conference in New Zealand. It was a wonderful trip. While there, Kathy and I, we rented a car and we discovered a uniqueness about New Zealand. It's a country with hundreds of single lane bridges. Single lane bridges. Apparently, the New Zealand DOT is too cheap to spend the extra money and build two lane bridges. And for Americans who are used to multi lane bridges, the first few times you pull out onto a one-lane bridge, it's a little disconcerting. 
On a two-lane bridge, there's room for two vehicles to travel in opposite directions. But not so on a one-lane bridge. Both cars don't have the right-of-way. Pluralism doesn't work on a one-lane bridge. Either there'll be a crash or a standoff, but on a one-lane bridge, there's not room for both cars to operate simultaneously. And life is like a one-lane bridge. At times, two opinions can't pass as if both are equally true. The two ideas will either crash or force a standoff, but both cannot be right simultaneously. One lane means somebody is right and somebody is wrong. And every Christian needs the courage to pull out onto a one-lane bridge. We need to take a stand for what's biblical and true with our family, with our co-workers, with our neighbors, even with our friends. God has revealed His will in His Word. And on many issues, there is no room for multiple conclusions. We can't be afraid to pull out into a single lane just because we may crash with someone coming in the opposite direction or even force a standoff. Every way is not the right way. And here, rather than stay in his lane, Jude is willing to pull out onto a one-lane bridge, even if it means losing a friend or alienating family or inciting opposition. Jude trusts God, and he realizes that his job is to contend. It's to be faithful to God's Word regardless of the circumstances. And not only did Jude contend for God's truth, but he also contends for God's grace. In verse 4, the word lewdness implies an excuse to do evil, the opposite of grace. See, God sets us free from the Old Testament law, not to act lawlessly, but lovingly. True liberty produces love for God and love for others, not a license to serve myself. A few years ago, the Atlanta newspaper ran a story entitled, Praying for a Successful Heist. When I read it, I couldn't believe it. It said, according to a federal indictment in Des Moines, Iowa, Kenneth Bruner led his seven accomplices in prayer for God's protection just before they set out to knock off Herman's fine jeweler. I'm not making this up. Bruner acknowledged, according to the indictment, They were going to do bad things, but they were not bad people. It was pointed out, no one was hurt in the robbery, and everyone was behind bars the next day. But this is how people think today. They see no contradiction between being born again and robbing banks, or sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend, or pilfering from the company, or fudging on their income tax, or cheating on their spouse, or looking at porn. God's grace frees us from condemnation so that we can know God and that we can walk in His Spirit. And when His Holy Spirit enters our hollow spirit, changes occur. So much so that if you say you're a Christian, yet you aren't becoming more like Jesus, there's a problem. If you're truly born again, you'll be different than you once were. You'll love instead of hate. You'll give instead of take. You'll care instead of stare right past the need. You'll obey God instead of go your own way. 
And so Jude continues. He says, but I want to remind you, though, you once knew this. And notice, this letter is a reminder of what had already been written to these believers. In fact, you can compare these first few verses here in Jude with 2 Peter chapter 2, and you'll be surprised with the similarities. It was as if Jude is re-recording Peter's song, covering an old hit. The truths that Peter had spoken were still very relevant, and Jude is stressing them here in his letter. Jude warns that false teachers will come, and the folks that they're able to dupe will share in their judgment. He illustrates this principle of a shared judgment with three examples. He mentions the Hebrews who left Egypt, the angels at the flood, and the citizens of Sodom. Now, the first example of a shared judgment are the Hebrews whom God delivered from Egypt. Verse 5. He says that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. You see, throughout their history, the Hebrews habitually listened to the wrong people. Don't you listen to the wrong people. First, it was that little twerp, Edward G. Robinson. Why did they listen to Edward G. Robinson? Do you remember this? You remember this? Play it, Bryce. Play it. It would have been so easy for Moses just to push him over the edge. Push him over the edge, into the water. That's what I would have done. But they listened to the guy. Let's go back to Egypt. They doubted Moses. Later, they followed a rebel named Korah. Still later, they listened to the ten doubting spies rather than to Joshua and Caleb. They perished because they heeded bad counsel. Another example of those who shared the judgment of the people who deceived them Verse 6, were the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, according to Peter, this story harkens back to the flood of Noah. Jude's phrase, who did not keep their proper domain, has some really bizarre connotations. Some Bible teachers think that this refers to fallen angels who appeared as males and who crossed a God-imposed barrier to engage in sex with women. Genesis 6 is offered as proof. Now it came to pass that the sons of God, that's a biblical idiom for angels, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. Fallen angels or demons appeared in male form and romanced the daughters of men. But it gets even more bizarre. I need some Twilight Zone music. (laughs) For Genesis 6 continues, he says, there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. 
In other words, these unlawful unions between demons and daughters created a race of what the Bible calls giants or a freakish breed of hybrids. You know, ancient mythology of the Greeks and Romans is full of these kind of creatures. Gremlins and titans and nymphs and hobbits. They were all offspring of natural and supernatural beings. Perhaps these legends were really echoes of the actual giants spoken of here in Genesis. But this explains God's extraordinary punishment. Why did he destroy mankind with a flood and start over with just eight people? Well, it could be the human gene pool is that perverted. Only Noah's family remained pure. And realize this idea of sexual experiences with demons is not as bizarre as it might seem. Fallen angels romancing women is a favorite Hollywood storyline even today. In fact, it appears in the occult as well as much of the UFO literature. And if you believe, as I do, that UFOs are demonic appearances, then sexual abductions could be another instance of fallen angels leaving their proper domain. You see, Satan's agents are always trying to cross boundaries imposed by God. And Jude warns us not to do the same. God draws boundaries in our lives, not to hem us in, but to keep danger out. That's why he draws boundaries. And we need to respect those boundaries. Don't desire the person who's not your spouse. That's a boundary God has established in your life. Don't take a drink when you know you'll end up drunk. Don't embrace a belief that's unbiblical. Don't ignore an authority that God has placed over you. Jude is warning us, cross a boundary ordained by God, and you'll be judged just like the angels. Then verse 7 As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Sodom was a wicked city. Ezekiel chapter 16 mentions her pride, her idleness, her greed, her apathy. But here, Jude calls out her sexual perversion. Sodom went after strange flesh. She refused to embrace God's plan for human sexuality. Like the fallen angels, she tried to set her own boundaries. And this is what makes homosexuality sinful. It's a deviation of the way God designed for men and women to function sexually. From creation and throughout the Bible, same-sex relations are condemned by God. Certainly, people with same-sex attraction need to be shown God's love. And they need to be invited to find their fulfillment in Christ. But the behavior itself is evidence of a hardening of the heart to God's truth. Jude's point is that Sodom got took up, got caught up in the vices of the cities around them and suffered the same fiery judgment as those who had influenced them. It was a shared judgment. And then he says in verse 8, Likewise also these dreamers, and Jude here again refocuses on the false teachers that had crept into the church, the creeps we talked about. He says, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they speak evil of dignitaries. They have no respect for spiritual authority. 
They're arrogant and self-obsessed. They have no fear or reverence for God. He says, yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. The heretics of Jude's day had no sense of spiritual decorum. Their disrespect and their ego and their haughtiness extended even into the spiritual realm. Reminds me of today's bombastic preachers. There's a lot of them. Man, they prance around the stage and start shouting at the devil, try to boss around demons. Hey, I'm no admirer of the devil, but neither am I arrogant enough to call him out and deliberately pick a fight. The devil, though sinful and sinister, is still an angelic being, and he's still very powerful. In Christ, he's no match for me, but on my own, I'm no match for him. And this is why Michael, though an archangel, and that's an angel with some clout, with some muscle, with some rank, Michael did not shout vicious threats. Rather, he resisted Satan in a humble manner. Michael made sure that he put Jesus between him and the devil. He had respect for spiritual realities and the power of the enemy, and so he said, the Lord rebuke you. Never live in fear of the devil, please. 1 John 4 verse 4 tells us that Jesus in us is greater than the devil. James 4 verse 7 boldly says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But that doesn't give us the right to act arrogantly as if we can take on the devil ourselves. Always keep the Lord between you and the devil. As Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. That's the appropriate approach. And then he says in verse 11, he gives three important examples. He says, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Jude gives us three more examples that warn us not to fall away from God's truths. And realize all three of these people mentioned started out in a good place, yet they strayed. See, Cain fell victim to anger. He got caught up in his own anger. He got mad that his brother's sacrifice was accepted and his wasn't. And he ended up killing his brother Abel. The heir of Balaam was greed. He followed God. But he could be bought for a price. He sold out for money. And he cursed the Israelites for the king of Moab. And then Korah's problem was jealousy. He was a jealous man. He couldn't stand to see Moses promoted over him. See, Jude's point is for us to guard ourselves against these same three vices. Against anger, against greed, and against jealousy. And then he says in verse 12, These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. See, the love feast was the church's weekly potluck. It was the meal where the poor were fed, and the believers were refreshed, and it always culminated with communion. And yet the anger, greed, and jealousy of these false teachers were sabotaging the church's love feast. When they got together, it wasn't about love at all. These false teachers only cared about themselves. They clamored for attention rather than serve others. They scarfed up food rather than share. 
These men had no restraint. They had no fear of God. Jude continues describing the spiritual charlatans that had invaded the church. He says, they are clouds without water carried about by the winds. See a cloud and there's an expectation, isn't it? You expect rain. Clouds carry promise. And yet these men were clouds without water. They promised blessing, but the only people they really blessed were themselves. They're late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. In other words, they had multiple chances to bear fruit, yet they ended up barren and disappointed. They failed to take advantage of their opportunities. They were raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. They produced waves of ministry motion, white caps of activity, but nothing of eternal value. Their ministry was all foam and no fruit. And then Jude saves the best and the most vivid description for last. He says, they were like wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. These false teachers were like shooting stars in the night sky, flashing across the heavens for a moment, even a second, but ended up sailing into oblivion, here today and gone tomorrow. Once there was a woman, she went on a new diet, an all-garlic diet. That's right, all garlic. Every morning she ate a garlic sandwich. At noon it was garlic for lunch. Garlicky food for dinner as well. Well, in the end, the woman said she didn't actually lose any weight. But people did say that she looked a lot smaller from a distance. For the few who laughed, thank you very much. But that was Jude's take on these false teachers. They looked good. They had style. Up close, they looked awful. They lacked spiritual character. They were all show, but no substance. They might have looked good at a distance, but certainly not up close. And then Jude says in verse 14, he says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And this blows my mind. Enoch was the seventh from Adam. Now that dates a guy. You lived a long time ago if your generation was within spitting distance of Adam. But what did this Enoch, this ancient Enoch, actually preach? And this is amazing to me. He preached the second coming of Jesus Christ. He warned the world that one day King Jesus will appear and hurl God's wrath on the ungodly. Jude continues his attack on these bogus church leaders. He says, these are grumblers complainers walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Rather than tell you what God says, they tell you what you want to hear. They flatter their listeners with falsehoods rather than challenge them with God's truth. Their goal is to gain support for themselves and their ministry instead of bringing salvation to their hearers. One year I received a card in the mail. I still have it. It's a wonderful card. I read it often. It says, thank you for teaching God's word and not a lot of other stuff. 
I pray that will always be true. God's word is our great need today. For he says in verse 17, But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. Again, Jude reminds his readers what Jesus and his apostles had predicted, that insincere people would infiltrate the church to pad their own pockets. Men who are more sensual than spiritual, more lustful than loving. These false teachers were more out for themselves than they were out for God. And under this kind of self-centered, self-absorbed leadership, the church only fractures and splinters. It's only when leaders submit to God and to each other that the believers with them follow suit and stay united. And then he says in verse 20, he exhorts them, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. I love this verse. You you maintain a love for God, not by focusing on your love for God, but by focusing on His love for you. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. Keep yourself in His love. We need to think of the Father's love as a summer shower. At any moment, he can pour out a blessing upon us. Just don't put up the umbrella. Just keep yourself in a place where he can bless you. Here's another way to say it. You want to jot this down. Stay under the spout where the blessings come out. That's what you need to do. Let the Lord love you. And here are Jude's three steps to keeping ourselves in God's love. First. He says, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Second, praying in the Holy Spirit. And third, looking for the mercy of our Lord unto eternal life. If you want to keep yourself in the love of God, here's what you need to do. First of all, you need to add some muscle to your faith. You need to build up your faith. And how do you do that? By studying and applying God's word. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Second, you need to pray in the Holy Spirit. You need to lean into the Spirit when you pray. He lives in you. He works on you. And He will make your prayers more effective. You need to rely on the Spirit's activity when you pray. And then third, you need to live today in light of eternity. Always looking for the mercy of the Lord. That's our escape. That's the rapture of the church. The Bible says before judgment comes down, the church will rise up, will be caught up to heaven. You keep yourself in God's love by building up your faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, and by looking for His mercy. And then he says in verse 22, And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Here Jude speaks of two types of evangelism. You know, some folks hear about the love of Jesus and they want to follow him. They're drawn to him by his love. It's Romans 2 verse 4. The goodness of God 
leads a man to repentance. Some people are led to Christ by the sweet-smelling fragrance of love. (laughs) But for others, it takes the sulfur smell of fire and brimstone from the pit of hell to get their attention. G. Campbell Morgan once said, I admit that I have seen a far larger number surrendered to Christ when I've been preaching on the terrible results of neglecting salvation than when dwelling on any other theme. Reminds me of the New York cab driver and the good pastor. They both died and went to heaven at the same time. In the lobby, they were waiting when an angel walks in and he takes the cabbie on this grand tour of heaven. The pastor ends up waiting a long, long time. He gets really ticked off. He's thinking, why am I waiting while this cabbie gets such special attention? Well, finally, the angel comes to usher the pastor into heaven. But the pastor can't help it. He asks, he says, I've loved people all these years. I've been faithful to teach God's word. Why did that cab driver get special treatment over me? The angel replied, he said, well, yes, you comforted folks, but that New York cab driver scared the hell out of them. (laughs) And that's the idea here. There are people so lodged in sin, it takes some good old-fashioned fear to shake them up. Jude closes verse 24 with a song of praise, a doxology. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. But notice, now to him who is able. Now to him who is able. You know, a fascinating study is to go through the Bible and note all the times it says God is able. Note what God is able to do. In Daniel 3 verse 17, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they tell the king of Babylon that God is able to deliver them from this fiery furnace. In Matthew 3, verse 9, John the Baptist informs the Jews that God is able to make children of Abraham from these Galilean stones. Romans 4, verse 21 tells us God is able to perform all that he has promised. Ephesians 3, verse 20 states that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8 says that if we give to God, He is able to make His blessings abound toward us. Hebrews 2 verse 18 assures us that God is able to help us when we're tempted. And Hebrews 7 verse 25 promises that God is able to save to the uttermost those who come to His Son. The story of the Bible is that God is able. And here Jude adds to this list of marvelous things that God is able to do. In verse 24 he says, God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. You know, I see fragile folks come to Jesus. They repent in a time of desperation. These people are just hanging on by a thread. And yes, they immediately become happier. They're more hopeful. They pray a prayer of repentance. They honestly put their trust in Jesus. There's relief from their guilt. There's joy in their heart. 
But you know that these people are going to go home to the same problems they left behind. And you know that the same burdens that got them searching will still exist. And you know tomorrow they'll face the same temptations that they struggled with today. Is there any hope for these new believers? Just babes in Christ. Will they still be walking with Jesus next week? How do we know they won't just get sucked right back up in the web of sin? Why do we have any confidence at all that they or that you or that me or that anyone will still be living for Jesus next week with all the temptations that exist in our world or the week after or after decades? It's because of one thing. God is able to keep us from stumbling. I need to hear an amen for that. God is able to keep us from stumbling. If we hold on to Jesus, even if it's a slender thread, if we hold on to Jesus, we'll find that thread to be stronger than a million ropes. If we hold on to Jesus, we'll make it through the tough spots and down the rocky roads. We'll survive the slip-ups and the stumbles, and we will arrive at God's throne, faultless in His sight. As Jude said, God is able to present us faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. I'm not able. You're not able. But God is certainly able. And my faith is in God's abilities, not my own. Let's close by reading this doxology together. It was probably read out loud in unison in the early church. And so would you read with me out loud verses 24 and 25? Let's do it boldly. Let's not have to do this twice. Let's shout it out the first time. You ready? And we're going to do it on my count. Ready? Ready? Three, two, one. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.